All right, Zig coming in on the top. Today on the show, we have Julian Shaw Taylor of The Singularity. Julian is a singer-songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, and producer. Julian has a new album out called Inlusium. It's available on all streaming platforms. We're going to hear Tune Off It in a little bit. It's an incredibly done record. There's a lot of uh, featured talent on it, one of which being David J. If you guys have listened back in October, we talked to his whole new band, The Night Crickets, David J., Victor from Violet Films, and uh, Darwin Miners. And Julian's done a lot of work with all three. He was actually on uh, The Night Crickets record as well. And that's how we started talking. So if, uh, if you're into that, um, go back in the catalog, check out. I did an interview with each member, and uh, we'd really dive into that record. And this is kind of an extension of it. But uh, anyway, Julian is an incredibly talented musician. We're going to listen to one of his tunes, and like the first thing when, uh, when I started listening to his music is, man, this guy's like Bowie-esque. In like the best way, like his voice is incredible. It, re- it resonates with these Bowie tones, but is uniquely his own. So we're gonna listen to a song he did with David J. This is a tune called "The Devil Knows." Check it. I don't belong to you, like you don't belong to me. There's a space behind your eyes that I can't feel. But I don't need anything That you can offer me I just want to know Conditions of your smile Don't want to see you cry Don't want to hear you lie The story of my life Oh, heaven knows I try don't want to see you cry Don't want to hear you The story of your life The devil knows I try The devil knows, the devil knows I If you're the God that's forbidding me, just grant me the forgiveness in your heart. It's only for will or predestiny. Sacrifice me on the altar of your past. Don't wanna see you cry Don't wanna hear you lie The story of your life Oh, heaven knows I've tried Don't wanna see you cry Don't wanna hear you lie The story of my life The devil knows I've tried Devil Knows off the album Inlusium, um, Julian Shaw Taylor, The Singularity. Available on all the streaming platforms. 
Um, this episode was recorded in classic Zig at the Gig fashion. It was uh, recorded in my van before a gig. And during this episode, I talked with Julian about some kind of producing mindsets, right? The philosophical, the psychological needs and, like, exercises one does once, like, producing and editing and mixing their own music. And uh, I bring up an example of a tune I've been working on and going back and forth between a master that had, like, a slight amount of reverb, which makes no difference to anyone else in the world. Um, but anywho, that song, we put it out. I play in a band called C-Level, letter C-Level. We are a funk-punk reggae rock group based out of Cleveland. We take uh, acoustic guitars and run them through martial amps and have a high-energy uh, aspect to us. And we put out a song called DIYs and Open Mics. It's on all streaming platforms. And it features it features our dear friends, Lee Amara, and the Dreamcatchers. So if uh, you endure my canter and you're like, he might be musically interesting... If you check us out at c-level44.com or any of the streaming platforms at c-level, you might uh, dig the tune. Anyway, um, before I get to the podcast, if you guys can like, subscribe, rate, review the podcast on any of the podcast platforms, it helps me keep getting cool insights from amazing artists like Julian and sharing them with you. And with that being said, let's get into this conversation. Here's me and Julian. To kind of get into it, that's per- like how often? What's when was the last time we went to Australia? We were there just before the pandemic. Yeah. Um. You know, it was 2019 end of. In fact, it was around the same time in 2019, and then they booked us to come back on 2020, and then of course everything the, yeah. the entire world imploded, so that didn't happen. But yeah, it, it was it was a really good show. We sold out pretty much. Um, all right, all the way around. We sold out in in um, four of the markets in Australia, and then two in New Zealand. Because we went to New Zealand as well. So that's pretty good. Yeah, that's um, amazing. That's. Pre- but this time we're not going to New Zealand, which feels a bit silly because that it's an easy hop skip. Right, and you're already there. Yeah, and they wanted us, so I don't know what's going on with the promoters. But anyway. Well. That'll be the the other leg. We well, well, we have to go to Australia again because we're in New Zealand. <laughs> well, right, exactly. Yeah. I mean, the, the funny thing about that is my 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 fiance is is from New Zealand, yeah. and we were gonna we were gonna piggyback the trip to go and visit her family and all that stuff. But I guess that didn't happen, and yeah. maybe there's a good reason for that. You never know. That's true. That's true. But uh, this new album is amazing. I've gone oh, back and forth through it, like maybe. I can't, like, since you sent me the link, like, a bunch, I was like, holy shit. Like, the what? production, the songwriting, the performance, all of it, it's so, so good. Thank you. I appreciate that. So, like, yes. I was going to say, to get to this leg, because I, I went, th- I didn't, li- I had, didn't have a chance to listen to everything, but I was going through your discography. I'm like, man, you be- it's been a hustle. It's been a nonstop hustle, and clearly shows in this album that you've been at it for, for a long time and have been adamant about doing it. But um, so with the kind of current project and current like, well, at least with this current record, let's kind of get some backstory up into that. Um, so music within your family, like, was music around your family? Were you a musical child? Oh yeah, yeah. My yeah. Um, grandmother was. I was raised by my grandmother because, um, you know, without going into details, I was raised by my grandmother. So <laughs> she was a music teacher and. Um, she married my grandfather and he sort of got her into business and so she was a business person and they they were doing business and she wasn't doing teaching she wasn't you know interacting with kids she wasn't doing what her heart really told her so she poured all that into me really and um decided you know to help me learn french and to taught me piano from from the age of five and sent me to a, a I went to boarding school I went to a um, cathedral choir school in the north of England which subsequently became the location for Hogwarts huh that's cool. legitimately yeah. you went to I Hogwarts. legitimately went to Hogwarts <laughs> <laughs> so um <laughs> that's awesome. no no magical spells I, I was clearly a squib <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, it was. I mean, it, I, I mean, I you know, people ask me about, oh no, what was boarding school like? And of course, you know, I don't know. It was what I knew, so yeah. I, it, it was fine. I, I know a lot of people who were quite damaged by their experience in boarding school, like Roger Waters, for example. Right. But um, <laughs> but I I don't didn't know any different, and I, I I enjoyed myself. I thought it was fine. 
so so yeah so she she kind of encouraged all that she wasn't religious at all not as i'm not religious i mean i i believe in you know that i'm probably not the end of the world just me <laughs> but also I, I couldn't ascribe to any specific faith patterns but they didn't force it on us weirdly it's like it, well, there was no sense in the inner boarding school which is ostensibly a religious school they didn't right. really make us be religious in any way so that's probably what made it much more durable <laughs> you know doable like is not having that kind of extra like but you know if you go into something like that and it sounds like um growing up with your grandmother you, it was more if you're more matured at that point in your life i feel like that experience isn't going to be too too jarring you know if you're kind of confident yeah. with yourself a little bit and like ready to handle living on your own to some degree <laughs> well yeah i mean you know i was, I was seven and yeah. that's a lot a lot of people feel that's that's that makes them feel a bit sad that you know you send a seven-year-old because i have a i have a little girl at the moment she's just coming to eight yeah there is no way i could imagine her not not actually she would thrive she's she's incredibly intelligent and i you know very able but i wouldn't send her to boarding school that would be ludicrous like that little face just you know disappearing amongst all the the older kids now nah, i couldn't do it yeah. but um but for me you know because it was my grandmother raising me I, I i mean i feel like she she made me very mature for my age so i was kind of i was i felt okay with it i guess you know it's like this is my this is the next step i'm getting older <laughs> yeah yeah was, but was, they taught me they taught me music you know i mean there was you know church organ piano singing violin clarinet flute like i did all that stuff at a very early age classically so so like reading like that you know well it's kind of like if if you're like adult figure like kind of talks to you like an adult you know growing up that you know that makes sense that like it'd be it'd be like that next step would be no big jarring experience uh um does that you know what i mean like if you're if you're kind of already in that headspace but with music um Jumping on each instrument like that at a very young age and just jumping into, like, the flexibility of, oh, I'm playing whatever is also, like, a super, like, incredible thing. So, like, when you, like, I mean, it sounds like piano was the main, but, like, getting a different view of each instrument, I mean, I imagine that plays in, like, going through this record, like, how much of it, like, because there's so many different things going on. Like, did you, like, I and I know you reached out and the credits have, um within the album have it's not just you on everything but like as far as like writing did you kind of like narrate some of the pieces that were written on here or dictate what the other players did um no i mean the only yeah. people that the only people who were on the record that really sort of um that contributed in a fundamental way were i guess the the, the track listing on the record i mean i have david david's on there yeah. obviously and um he he played to what was already there. Okay, so, so there was no. Laid out. Got it. Yeah, it was already written. I mean, on, honestly, I, I I worked with David quite a lot. Yeah. I mean, I played I played a little bit of keyboards on the new Night Crickets just as a sidebar. Oh, yeah? Nice. yeah, I mean, it's just just a little bit though. No, yeah. Normally, I'm a lot more sort of you know um, interactive with him and Darwin. Darwin's a very good friend of mine. I produced Darwin's last album. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Whoa. But um. <laughs> Put a pin but in he, that. We'll come back to that. Oh, okay, sure. Um, but no, so so David came along and played bass over something that was already existing. But it was actually MGT that I'd reached out to. So there's two. There's actually now three versions of Devil Knows. There's there's a version that is the Ruby Rock version, which came out on the single um, uh, in 2020, which has Mark Slutsky on drums, MGT, like his entire thing is it's his production basically so he's playing the guitars all the way through he's uh, david's playing bass mark's on drums and then i'm just basically singing i took pretty much everything that i did musically out but this one on the album is a hybrid so i took the best of parts of what mgt had played in my opinion and then i added like things that i wanted to do with it so i wanted to like have it as a collaborative thing as though we'd come up with it as a band and in, in some ways, it's a jigsaw of the song. So, you know, there's David on bass for certain bits, and then I'm playing the bass from the my version of it on other bits. Because the, 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 
the MGT version, as I want to call it, is more lends itself more to just straight ahead rock, where it's people in a in a room. And of course, I do everything on my own in the studio. So when I come, when somebody comes in with something that sounds live and exciting, it's great for me. But sometimes I want to add things that I did and sort of hybridize. So that so I did that with Devil Knows, I, and and then also with Evolution, which um, MGT is also on. Okay. I he came to my studio for that session and he added because it's such a heavily electronic song yeah he added pieces which kind of sounded like a little bit like i guess you know robert smith soloing over the cure and it didn't work all the way through the song i mean i've, I've actually done a i've got a, a vinyl uh, which is um, slated to come out and i've put a lot more of mgt's playing on it because i took out all the keyboards and I was just like, okay, now this works. <laughs> so there is a version, okay, yeah, sort of remix coming out on the vinyl eventually. But um, as far as the rest of the album, like like songs like Earthquakes, Bet Your Life, Dark and You, it's like that's all just me playing with my. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, so that kind of makes sense to jump back in the past a little bit. So learning all these different like aspects of music, like jumping from violin, jumping from piano like to have that kind of different gauge and where these instruments fit in orchestra kind of primes the brain to think like that for when you're writing later. So when did, Oh, sure. Sure. Uh, yeah. Good. Good observation. That's a, like, when did you start singing? Uh, I was around five. I mean, around, my, uh, my, my grandmother was, yeah. you know, encouraging me to, to sing in, in school. And so I'd get up in front of the class when I was five and, and, you know, that was my first performance. Then, of course, you know, I'm seven. I'm singing in front of thousands of people in the church cathedral. So I've been singing a long time. So, because, man, your voice is amazing. Like, I listened to this record and, like, I was like, I'm sure you've got the David Bowie note before. Like, where you <laughs> get that? <laughs> where you, Who? Where, who? <laughs> um, you got a little hint of Bowie in your, in your voice. But, like, it's so pure and the tone's, like, as someone who's spent a, like a super long time later in life trying to figure out how to sing, you know what I mean? Like there's something so natural about your performance and just like listening to like this whole record and hearing how it fits in all these different aspects. It's like, it's a full tone and it's, it's pure and you can feel it. Like, uh, so that makes sense that it would, it would have started since five. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. I mean, I, yeah, I'm definitely, I, I mean, I, I really love, for example, like Neil Young, and there's no, there's no way that Neil Young has influenced this record, but I love the way he used used around the time of Harvest and and um, you know after the Gold Rush, he used very textural and very close harmonies. Yeah. Like you know he used to stack. There's a song called New Mama, which I think is from um, actually maybe the one before after the Gold Rush, and it's it's just the end of the song is just the 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 four or five of them just singing in close harmony and it is absolutely stunning like i i definitely like stacking vocals and certain vocals like the main vocal can be a a dark baritone bowie thing but then the high vocal needs to be a a sort of a more airy liz liz fraser vibe so i do i do try to kind of like differentiate between vocal tones and, and textures when i'm doing you know when i'm threading because as i say it, it vocally there are no backing vocals except my own and i and i do sometimes work with um durga mcbroom who who used to sing with pink floyd i i sometimes get her in on my stuff oh no I, way cool <laughs> yeah she's she's yeah. she's great but but her texture is so unattainable I could not attain that texture. There's no way, you know, not with the studio trickery, no nothing. She is the guttural, throaty gospel goddess, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, in that when you can really like tune the craft, when you can take your voice and you fully like kind of learn your range and where where you sit and how to make that the purest it can be. It's like learning those those weird alterations of how to like twist your soft palate to make it sound like airy or make it, you know what I mean? They make it, make right. it get those hints of whatever. And like that make for harmonies, like you're saying, that's, that's crucial because like, if it all just sounds like you, you know, it's, it's just a wall of you. But if you can add that, that accent, that's, you know, in those little spices of different tonality, 
I, I mean, well, I try and, and, you know, obviously you're very, very well aware of, I mean, I was a singing teacher for a while. So the physiognomy of singing is adjustable. I mean, you can, you can make yourself sound like, I mean, obviously I tribute, I, I work in tribute. So I can do literally a Bowie voice that sounds more like Bowie than I would normally sound. But honestly, I'm not putting it on, on the record. I mean, it, it that is how my voice normally sounds, yeah. but then I can go full Bowie if I want to, you know? <laughs> because it is about you know you you look at somebody's face and you see sort of the size and and dynamic of the of the nose versus the right. chest and all that yeah. stuff it's like and that that is something that's worth observing especially in in the world of tribute because you know you you look at them and you say okay well i need to pinch my nose i need to be conscious of the size of my nose and pinch it in to be a bit more like grace flick for yeah. example, you know, like because because those the 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 organ itself is is the amplifier of the voice. The voice is just the the resonance of the of the vocal cords, right? But the actual yeah. face, like Freddie Mercury, would not have had that voice without those enormous teeth. <laughs> right, <laughs> you know? right, right. And like that's that's what makes I don't know, like with vocalizing anything. It's such like a I feel like a it's such a personal and like it's so easy to be kind of like terrified of it because it's putting yourself out there it's the one thing you have that no one else has is your set of pipes and like right. uh and like everything about you alters that tone and i think that's what makes people so afraid to to get up and sing or to be expressive like that but because it is it's very it's very um uh vulnerable isn't yes it? i mean yes there's something quite vulnerable i don't, I don't feel the vulnerability you see it's like i'll sing and I'll sing badly and I don't care. Like, if, yeah, you know, yeah. if I have a cold and I get up at karaoke and I sing badly, I'm, I'm just not worried about what. See, that's that's the difference. Pe people certainly in America, I understand that public speaking is one of the main fears of people in America. And it's because, you know, they're worried about being judged or they're worried about people disagreeing with them or they're worried. I, and honestly, America is one of the most open minded and most welcoming countries in the world to do yeah. creative stuff. So it's strange to me that that would be the big fear, because I mean, I, and, and as I say, I don't care. It's like I'll get up there and I'll do what I do. And if people like it, then great. If they don't like it, then they can go for themselves. I don't give, <laughs> yeah. I don't give these, you know, because honestly, there are the world is not full of your people. There are certain people in the world that you're going to resonate with. And then everybody else is either going to be indifferent or hate you. Yeah. <laughs> so find your people. You know, that's the most important thing. I think that's well said, too. Because you, you, so many people get caught up in everything being perfect and right and appeasing everybody. And, it, like, it takes, it takes I, I think, definitely, you know, singing at five, you know, and just being in front of people, especially in, like, in school, you know, and having that kind of comfortability with, like, I can do this and it sounds like that, you know. So much of just being comfortable with what where, what you can do and what you sound like, and that makes I think it, it, uh, discovering yourself easier. Like, yeah, absolutely. Like, I I feel like I, I I fell in the music in like high school, and like I just went down the rabbit hole of putting myself in the tape recorder and like ah oh, I can never like really just knowing I could do it better, you know, and just having that kind of like. Uh, check self-check in that sense helped with everything else and helped me like self-analyze you know right. i wish i did that when i was like your age you know younger <laughs> like starting to do that through through all of education because i would have got a lot more ready <laughs> sooner i think i don't know but uh, well, it happens you know for a reason I, I really like david's um uh attitude towards things i mean you know i record with him a lot and when, when he comes in the studio and it's when he's got it if he's got a song prepared which is often he will just come in and he'll just do a take. Yeah. And that's the one that's on the record huh. because there's a certain degree of, um, you know, it, it's like he wants to bottle the lightning right. and, or capture lightning in a bottle. Sorry, that's a more, more elegant way of phrasing it. And, you know, oftentimes, you know, the best one that you ever get is the one where you're just figuring it out. It's just outside your comfort zone. And as soon as you start overthinking it, and as soon as you start re-recording that section, that segment that you've perfected, then you're missing it, and you're and and the magic has sort of disappeared because it's it's more fluid and it's more flat and rounded, 
whereas now now with um you know with a lot of my stuff what i used to do is i used to loop i used to find a good riff and i used to loop it and because i was in a i was in a band an electronic rock band was quite successful in the early 2000s and we looped we took something we looped it up it was almost like sampling the instruments and then recreating something so i I got used to doing that and then i realized the brain picks up on lack of variation and it becomes something other than it is now i'm an accomplished instrumentalist in in different contexts like piano and guitar and vocals whatever so instead of looping it once i've written the song and the loop may may or may not be in there i will then re-record everything all the way through and if there's a mistake i will assess that mistake and see whether it improves the song or whether i need to redo it sometimes i'll leave the mistakes in like if you listen to earthquakes for example i had a version of earthquakes without roads on it and i put and i you know i listened to this version it was just guitar and bass and it was quite skeletal and I liked it. It was great. I, I, I was very pleased with it. And then I realized I wanted it to be a smooth song. I wanted it to sound pretty and beautiful because it's a song about the love of my life. I mean, that, the album is written about the love of my life and how I met her and how the relationship developed. And it's a narrative. Like if you really sort of, I, I could tell the story and I probably will at some point as a sort of, you know, YouTube or something. But I wanted it suddenly. I was like, okay, I want to smooth this out. I want it to be loving. And so I just played it on the roads once. So there's nothing on that. There's no retakes, no nothing on that roads part. Because, and I didn't really remember the chords because this is months after I'd written it. And I just felt, okay, well, this is a bit, there's a bit of wiggle in it. It's not right on the grid. It's not perfectly in time. And there are certain notes which should probably not be the right notes. But it worked. Right. And there's something magical about that and then david working with david taught me that because he is never one to correct like we've done you know what six seven songs at this point where i think he's gonna i think it's gonna be the first side of his new album solo album yeah most of the vocals there are one take vocals we'll drop on we'll drop in for the most egregious tuning issue but most of it is one take vocals because David wants that. That's that's what defines him is that, you know, the ma- magical quality with a K, you know. <laughs> <laughs> De- well, he definitely like when I spoke with him, like, it, he's got that vibe. He's just in just the stories he kind of got into when I was talking with him. Like it really does seem spur of the moment. And there's something to um, someone. And I think that's a great degree of practice beforehand you know i mean getting comfortable and getting like um in tune with yourself and in tune with your creativity that you can just do it whenever and get to that point where like it has you know it's right now because if not it gets worse it takes that that practice of learning that it gets worse when you think about it too much you know yeah yeah, absolutely we're not max martin here we're not crafting you know britney's comeback single this is (laughs) this is art and i think you know have you read David's book? I haven't read his book. You know, when I talked with him, like, I didn't know he had a book out until, like, afterwards. I was like, shit, oh, that would have definitely, like, I dove pretty deep into, like, everything I could find, like, new article-wise and, like, uh, audio-wise. And, uh-huh. like, you get through, because he's got so many solo records, and you get through those, and you're like, wait, shit, there's a book? I'm talking with him soon. But um, uh, I know he's got it. I just haven't gotten into it yet. But... <laughs> not to cut you off oh i, I recommend it it's, yeah it's it's fascinating and, and he's you know a very interesting character it's one of his good friends and this is, i mean i knew they worked together because i've with there are a lot of synchronicities between me and david like i i put a i did a video for a song the, the way he sort of got to know me as a producer is darwin asked me to um do a song for his kanreki cd okay. which is I think that's a, a Japanese um, word for 60th birthday. I want, I want to say yeah. 60th day CD. So I did a song, I did a cover of one of David's songs and he really loved it. He loved my cover. So, you know, that's one of the things that started us working together. And um, I, the video I put to the song, I cut up the only movie that Alan Moore, the comic book writer has mm-hmm. ever made. I cut it up and put it to this song that I'd done without knowing at all 
that David was good friends with Alan Moore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and that was just a really weird synchronicity. It's like a magical, a magical moment where right. he saw the video. He's like, "Oh, Julian, great video. You know, I'm good friends with Alan." <laughs> and I'm like, "Oh, fuck, really?" Because Alan Moore is one of my huge heroes. Yeah. Did you? Oh, yeah. Did he link you guys up somehow? <laughs> Not, not yet. I mean, Alan doesn't fly, so yeah, yeah, he's pretty. Um, I, I would, if I ever go to Northampton and I happen to be around there, which is honestly a little unlikely because it, it's not the most auspicious town in in England. Right. But if, but if I ever do, I will definitely ask ask David to hook me up because, fuck yeah, would I <laughs> would I do a magical celebration with <laughs> Alan Moore? Yeah, of course. That'd be so sick. <laughs> Wow, that you know, he seems like it's such like the kind of like inspiration in the moment type of like a uh, creator, like in like thinker, like I don't because I, I remember hearing about the Alan Moore bit with uh, I forget what which interview or which article, and I remember him talking about this album and receiving this album on his birthday and being like so moved that so many, you know, that what a touching 60th birthday gift, you know what I mean? How cool oh, is yeah. that? Oh, that's oh. wonderful. I mean, I, 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 I thank Darwin for that because Dar- Darwin is, Darwin is a great connector. Yeah. And a marvelous, marvelous guy and a great songwriter, particularly good lyricist. And yeah, I loved, I loved working with him. I mean, as I say, I did, I think I did a remix for him initially, and then, and then he asked me to produce the whole album. And I was, it was a collaboration. Honestly, same, same with David. It's like when we work together. I mean. So, more so with Darwin, because David is a bit more of a control freak than Darwin is. But um, actually, that's not fair. He's not a control freak at all. But he's got a more solid idea of where something's going to go right. before we start working on it. Whereas Darwin just said to me, you know, you go ahead, do what you would do. And I really dug into that record. I feel very proud of it. And I feel, you know, there could no, there's, there's no other sort of collaboration that would have rendered that same result than mine and Darwin's. So I'm proud of it. Did you hear the so few comments? Um, yeah. Album? Yeah. Yeah. No, when I was diving through his stuff to get ready to talk with Darwin. Yeah, no, it's a great work. Um, that's yeah. so like, did you, how did you meet Darwin first before David? Right. And how'd you meet Darwin? Just no, reaching out? No, or? no, weirdly. Um, I met David. David was, um, when I first moved to LA, I had a band. Um, it was under my name, I think, Shah, I think it was called, or, or just Julian or Shah Taylor or whatever. And David, my friend who was a drummer called Shock, who who is um, a sort of the stalwart L.A. goth connector. So yeah. all the goths in L.A. know Shock and Shock's worked with everybody. And he was working with David at the time and he brought David to my show for whatever reason. And David came up to me after the show and was like, Oh, Julian, very impressed. Very impressed. Yeah, d- definitely loved it. And I d- had no idea who he was. <laughs> I mean, I, I've, yeah. I'd always known about Bauhaus, but I wasn't a huge fan. I kind of, um, I, I associated Bauhaus with a bunch of people in Nottingham, because I used to live in Nottingham in England. And they were all heroin addicts. And they were Bauhaus fanatics. So I always associated Bauhaus with a very dark... Yeah like squatters on heroin you know and and, yeah, and that yeah. was although i loved the music it was great and of course the first time i ever heard ziggy stardust was by bauhaus um so i i appreciated them and knew that they were great but then when i met david it was like oh it's the bass player from bauhaus so what <laughs> <laughs> and you know then obviously you know i i got to know darwin uh, about 10 years later honestly and darwin was managing david and i said oh i met david because i was quoting david on my press release because you know obviously then i realized bauhaus have this you know great history and they're very well respected by everybody like everybody in the world not just the goths and then i dived a little bit further into their catalog and it i'm i i love goth but i really love melody and i feel i feel bauhaus don't have a lot of melody in what they do it's all about the live show and it's all about the feeling right which i get 100 percent now but at the time i was diving into bauhaus i was like yeah okay I, I love it it's great it's very cool and edgy but because i, I work from home 
in my home studio writing on an acoustic guitar. Right. Now, there could not really be anything more far removed from that than the band <laughs> jamming yeah. together, you, you know? So yeah, yeah, yeah. Th- though I respected it, I didn't, I didn't get it. And then I saw them play um, what, a couple of years ago before the pandemic with Peter. I mean, sorry, with the whole band was Bauhaus right. at the Hollywood Palladium. And my God, they were spectacular. And I ate my words. I was just like, this is fabulous. And then I saw them at some Cruel World as well. And again, it was just fabulous. There's, there's no, they, they have no peers live in that context. So. Well, and that's the thing, like with any, what's, it's a beautiful thing about music is like with any artist, like there's always a different aspect that you either see or don't see when you dive into someone, which makes it really hard to like, it live is always going to be fully encompassing because like you're there, you know? Um, but like, it's interesting in like, as you study and write and like work on your own thing, it's like those things come out later that you appreciate. Like the idea of writing by yourself is really, really far removed from how Bauhaus did their stuff because that they're that unit, you know, and mm-hmm. writing as a unit is so different. And it's, almost, oh, sure. it's, it, I, I mean, it's harder to do, because you, there's more, there's more yes and no people in the, you know, I don't like that. Ah, you know, that sounds too much like it's so hard to get anything done with a group of people, let alone express yourself as a unit. Like, and that, and that with, with Bauhaus specifically, like, because there are no hits, I mean, let's be honest, they didn't have any hit songs. They had, you know, obviously very famous songs right, like right. Bella Lugosi's Dead. But how do you decide, how do you determine as a group? the exact perfection of terror couple terror couple kill colonel for example like how do you know as four totally diverse people that that is genius i mean i I, because i watch it and i'm like that is genius but if i was in a rehearsal room i would be desperately searching for a hook right for example you know (laughs) yeah yeah no like sorry (laughs) But but I'm not saying there isn't any hooks. Yeah. It's just they are so avant-garde and so cool and so arty that 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 the four of them together coming to that conclusion musically is what was brilliant about Bauhaus. And you know, I I I, I appreciate that. And then of course, Love and Rockets is a totally different thing. That is then song-based. Yeah. They're they're bringing all the pop in back into that pro- context, and it's a totally different thing. It could be two completely different bands. I, I couldn't agree more because it, it also kind of tracks the kind of like creativity, like, uh, like growth in a way. It's like you start writing when you start writing, you just start kind of putting stuff together. You don't really maybe make it the final draft. You do one draft, you know, and like it's almost full circle from what we talked about uh, a little bit ago. Like when you write a song, like y- you kind of examine it and you try to make it better and rewrite it, yada, yada. And then you get to a point where you just write it once and record it once. You know what I mean? It's like the full circle of like um, starting, just doing something, moving on. Then, well, maybe uh-huh. I don't just start and do something. I really hone it and like hack away at it. Maybe I hold on to that, add another part a few days later. You know, you, you just spend more time thinking about this expression. And then right. it's like where you guys are at now where it's just like hit record. I think this is it. You know, like. Yeah. But that not that wonderful? It's be, I mean, I haven't. I used to be in a band like that when I, when I was first in London yeah. and it was, we kind of like suede, I guess is probably the best analogy. Like I was a huge, huge suede fan. And, you know, we would do that jamming thing, but then I'd take everything home, craft it, bring it back in. And then we'd sort of like incorporate the jam, but I would have to direct it right? because I only know pop. I only know how to popify something. I can't, allow it to be art do you know what i mean it's 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 weird it's like a proclivity where i mean i i mean you know i don't wish to blow my own horn but i feel like on the record on elysium every song has a hook and a definitive chorus yeah and and i'm and i'm it's not my intention to be so sort of obvious sometimes like one of the songs on the album i won't mention which one it was my grandmother loved it it was her favorite song i ever wrote and it feels like the most obvious pop song i've ever written and you know i'm sort of 
not not embarrassed about it at all it's it's just like when when i remember when the cure came out with friday i'm in love i remember my heart sank i don't, I don't know why because obviously that's their biggest moment yeah. and the thing that reached most people in the world with this genius band that deserves all the success in the world yet i knew that that was their kind of creative nadir and that they would never be the same again and they weren't <laughs> Yeah, you know, there's definitely, like, I don't know, but I think, like, because part of, like, our ears want that in it, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, I'm, there's definitely, I'm sure, some people that don't want to hear anything remotely close to a um, a hook or a resolved melody. Some people reside in dissonance, and, like, that's what they're right. going for, but... Um, like, free goose Sonic Youth, for example. Right, 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 right. <laughs> And uh, definitely pretty good. Um, but, you know, it's like, but the, there's a, I think, I think it's a balance, at least for myself. I like a balance. I like the punk edge to it, but I'd like to be able to sing it. <laughs> like, and I like to be oh, able to have a hook for that narrative. Like Buzzcocks. Yeah. Buzzcocks is a great example. Yeah. I mean, it's, they have the, the buzz saw guitar and buzz saw buzzcocks. <laughs> they, they have that sawing yeah. style guitar and the aggression, but they also have these beautiful pop melodies and it, it, it's it's almost like you've got it's almost like the Beatles with filtered through the punk movement, isn't it? And I, I love that about them. But then again, I love I love some Sex Pistols. I guess the Pistols also had pop pop. Yeah, totally. Elements. You can totally sing "God Save the Queen," or you know, like there's and that, right. or even like the Ramones. The Ramones are very poppy, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but but the Ramones were deliberately so. I mean, they right. they wanted to be Motown, didn't they? They wanted to be Phil Spector. They wanted that whole that whole thing because i mean at the at the end of the day and, and you know this this is a controversial thing to say especially in the punky fraternity that i have been party to in the past is that you should want success you should want fame you should want to be recognized because if you don't people won't work with you and they won't pay you for what you do <laughs> that's a really important factor you know right right well you know even just like Doing what you're doing and expressing yourself, that like if all you're doing is doing that for your sake, you know, like it's kind of that's where it gets to be a little arrogant in a way. If you're doing it in a way where it's kind of like inspiring others and you get to express yourself, you know, which comes oh, with yeah. a little bit of success, it, it turns that narrative at least to, to not as a, much of a selfish endeavor. So I totally agree. A little success what? is going to definitely make that heard and make you a. Uh, example as opposed to a, um i i want i mean the thing that i want and always wanted with my music and and i think that most musicians would have to admit this to themselves at least is connection i want yeah. to connect with people i want to find my tribe i want to find the people who say hey wow this sounds this guy sounds a bit like bowie and he you know it sounds this chord change is very swayed and my god there's a depeche mode sound here i love this this is great this is right in my lane because those people are the people that i would connect with if i were to meet them on the street and say you know hi how are you they're not going to be country and western people because they're not my tribe and not not, not to be disparaging right. of of that at all but i want connection with people so i make music with that expressly in mind do i do it from a very sort of solipsistic intellectually rigorous way on my terms yes i do but that's because most of the people that i connect with are a little bit like that yeah and, and that's okay you know totally. it's like it's okay to admit you're a musical elitist for example <laughs> you know <laughs> but i i mean i i don't i don't think i'm a musical elitist necessarily but i do like things to be a little bit of everything and intellectually rigorous and a bit sexy and a bit dancey. And when I hear that in other bands, I get really excited. And I, I don't feel there's a lot of that around at the moment because, you know, the, the lanes are so blurred yeah. and the lanes are so sort of um, open. Like you, you look at Spotify, how many releases they get every week, a million releases. There's, there's no path to excellence because you're always competing with with a very um how wide, can i put it wide uh... wide and flash in the pan right like if it's all about playlists where does the album live right like i mean like is that it's like watching an advert as opposed to a movie yeah <laughs> yeah and, well the kind of like i mean that's a, 
that kind of makes sense to kind of backtrack if you kind of grew up from like playing all these dif- different instruments and like reading music and like having all these different insights with music. To me, that makes sense that you would have like this this need to have like this kind of intellectual approach, but also like has to groove and has to have these certain things. Like, because music music can be complicated and specific, but people are that way too, you know. And music's yeah. made for people. <laughs> like, oh, so absolutely, yeah. I, I can't, there are very few sort of people of of limited scope that enjoy what I do. Don't get it. It doesn't reach them. It's like if you, it's like Radiohead. Like Radiohead, such, such a lucky band. I love right. Radiohead. Probably my favorite band. They had the Dum Dums first single, and did not to be you know disparaging, but yeah. They, um, Creep, Creep is a very obvious song. It's very simply simply written, and it's beautiful, but it is by far and away not their best work. And they had the opportunity from that one song to develop, and my God, they developed on the Benz. Like, the Benz was... That's a great record. In, it's an absolutely spectacular record. And then, OK, Computer, it's like, but this is, they just going back down into this rabbit hole of weird, but they still took... Yeah. Like everybody in the music world who has a discerning musical palette cannot but love Radiohead, in my, in my opinion. I mean, because they've done they've they've pushed the envelope and they've been allowed to because they reached out beyond that, you know, the ivory tower right. initially. Yeah. Yeah. And then it was like Kid A. And then you're like, oh, where are we going? And like, but that that worked because of their like exponential growth up through like OK Computer and like kept bringing people into that kind of like bigger thought, you know, and and, and 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 I feel like, you know, educated people on, on music that's fascinating, like Black Dog Recordings or Warp, Otecra, Aphex Twin, like all of those bands that I was into before Kid A suddenly they become you know touchstones for people who would normally like be chanting oasis songs at football matches you know yeah. and and that that again i love oasis too so i don't want to make that sound like it's disparaging but but radiohead were hand holding people through yeah these more these deeper forms of expression i really appreciate that it's like reading it's like reading a novel by nabokov where He's doing something spectacular with language, but the story is also kind of weird and cool and simple. It's like, you know, Radiohead are a pop band, in my opinion. They're just a pop band with great influences. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I think that's well said because you're right. <laughs> like, they hit so many things that are very catchy. And, like, it's interesting. I wonder if they kind of, if it was their natural progression as a band. Um, moving through that or if they kind of had to like a, a picture each record where they wanted to go and how they wanted to expand because i've never you know i mean that would be because really, if that's the case if they're writing that novel in that way bring you step like almost tiered learning <laughs> like yeah i think so i think so. i've definitely um you know read had some interviews with um or listen to some interviews with tom and i think that's yeah. exactly how they do it like for me when i write an album like this is the first album I feel I've been cohesive in in my approach to it because you know all the I've done a, around twelve full albums at this point and nobody knows or cares <laughs> but, but you know this one I'm I'm I've finally settled on it it was it was a topic and a sonic palette and I I have strayed from the sonic palette of that because you know there's some some songs are just there's only guitars on there and then there's one song darkling you which is the one that finishes the record which yeah. is basically nine inch nails off cut <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah definitely got that vibe to it so you know that there is a very large variation but it is sonically more coherent than some of my other stuff and also simpler which might surprise you because it's not that simple in, in sonic sonically but um but it, but yeah i mean i definitely for this one it was good to have a, a a framework a skeleton to hang the songs on like i had a very specific target on what i was going to do and it's been the last three three to four years i've been writing these songs and they all form a narrative so they are along the same lines mostly and that that's very useful to have because if i think if you have if you're in a band and they just make one sound, like if you're in Bauhaus, they are going to sound like Bauhaus. Right. But if you're doing it all from from the home studio on your own, 
you have every option in the world because you can play with string arrangements, you can play with synths, you can play with gamelan orchestras from, you know, Java, because you have everything. I mean, you know, we're we're privileged, right? This in this day and are you a music producer as well? I work with so I uh, I work with a guy when we when my band records and like we'll add stuff together. Like I uh, I haven't learned how to uh, as far as like I mean produce and thought you know like oh can we get that on there oh that's how you do that okay okay yeah keep doing that like i play a lot of a lot of stringed instruments and kind of gotten that headspace right Mm -hmm. and like uh and same with like vocals and stuff but as far as like producing music i aside from like hey can we get that on there you know (laughs) aside Mm -hmm. for directing I, i don't know as much as like actual like how to work the programs or whatever or like if that makes sense like you're, you're more of a youth style producer because that's what youth does. He he's yeah. in and he sort of puts crystals on the desk and then <laughs> like percolates the ideas and directs, but doesn't really hands on engineer. I think. Yeah, that would be a good way to put it. Like, I think we can add. Uh, let's add a harmony here. Can that work? Let's try it anyway. <laughs> like, yeah, see, that no, works. <laughs> but that's a very that's a very specific style of production, isn't it? It's like it doesn't. You don't need to actually be a musician. I, I'm good friends with. Nick Launay, who who's a producer who produces a lot of like Yeah Yeah Yeahs, Arcade Fire, oh, yeah, all those guys, and he's not really a musician. He actually makes it his mission to not be musically involved with the record oh. at all. He just di- directs and gives ideas and and captures moments, and I I like that. I think that's a good good approach, and I would love to work with a producer like that where I don't touch the board at all, that would be wonderful because it's been a very, very long time. In fact, yeah. last time I did it with Nick Launay, that's the very last time I worked with anybody other than myself. And that was a long time ago. <laughs> well, it's interesting because like producing and like engineering and kind of being in that backseat of things is such like a, it's such like kind of a higher big picture thought of what you're looking at and where it's got to go and and like what exactly it is. It's a different if it's a different headspace to be analyzing things in that way, because as someone who, like who records a lot, like I really get caught up in the performance of what I just did. You know, does that like? Right. And you're like, did I did I get that right? And you start to eat away at these little things. Well, let me try it again. I said the word a little funky. Let me make sure I pronounce. And like, you get caught up in those little details. Whereas a producer uh-huh. and like an engineer, you're looking at the bigger thing, and that's such a different a different view. It is. I mean, I, I definitely, you know, certainly because the, 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 there's one sort of drawback with being the sole progenitor of, of the music in that sometimes I won't obsess enough about something. Yeah. So al- although it's kind of charming sometimes to have certain fluffs, when you notice it and it's already been mastered and, and put mm-hmm. out, yeah. that, that then becomes a... Uh, I mean, I've learned to move on from that because it happens so often. Yeah. <laughs> but then it becomes like yeah. thing. Like even if there's a, a click on the edit that you didn't find, and it's very low in the mix, and nobody in the world would ever notice, but you do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I totally. I, yeah, no, I totally get that, and that's one of those things. Like the other, I work at a I work at an art gallery as well in Cleveland, and um, mm-hmm. I had a master in, and I had a, I sent it to this this guy in Austin. He works a studio called Dream Studios, um, and he sent me. He's like, you know what? I really liked Reverb on it too. So here's two takes of it. I'm like, oh no, I don't need this decision right now. So I'm bringing people huh? in my van. I'm like, what do you think? Does the reverb change it? And the answer is like, it, it sounds like the same song, right? <laughs> it's like one of those things you get caught up as as someone behind the scenes in trying to figure out. Well, it, I, I work with the guy called um, uh, Robert Margalef. He he oh, he co-produced um, "End of the Line" first song and "Secret" was the other song he co-produced. Both very catchy. And, thank you very much. "End of the Line" is currently Grammy nominated. Actually, Congrats. Uh, that's awesome. Thank you very much. It's um, a very surprising thing to be you know considered in that context because yeah. I would never have ever imagined me being amongst you know the keshas and doja cats of the world (laughs) but um but yeah something he taught me which was really interesting because obviously he worked with stevie wonder back in the day and you know oingo boingo and devo and all those guys 
And he told me what you're trying to do with a recording instead of using sort of like, you know, reverbs on everything and trying to craft these like individual sounds, what you're doing essentially as a producer is you're putting the music into a sonic space for a listener. So the best way to listen would be on headphones nowadays, right. because, you know, back in the day when it's all records and things like that, that was the only way you could listen. But now on headphones, you're trying to place each instrument in the space and it is up to you whether that instrument stays in its space or whether it has special effects. But you have to be very judicious about where you choose those effects to be and when they come and what they're doing and who where's going around what things are moving around the head. And I'm not still not that great at that. He is spectacularly good at that. Like I'm in, in awe of his abilities because he's 80 something and he just he's sharp as a tack and i love the guy he's a real sweetheart but he he put that very succinctly to me it's like okay so are you are you a band in a room standing in specific places or are you a sonic soundscape or are you a movie soundtrack like you've got to decide like what you're doing with your music and honestly with me now i'm going back to the idea of just being raw and just having a guitar on that side, a guitar on that side, a keyboard in the middle, bass and drums and a vocal. And then maybe the maybe the backing vocalists are far out to the right, you know, like really sort of think judiciously about that and then trim everything else. Like make sure you don't have too much stuff going on because then you can focus on what's important. And to be honest, I'm learning that for most of my stuff, the song is important. So if I can play that song with an acoustic guitar and just deal with that, then I don't need to build these big soundscapes around it. And I have been doing that. So I'm trying to back away from that a little bit. I think and that, I think, yeah, that's a really good lesson. And to like think of it that way, because it's, it's almost like in that way where you like start playing guitar or something. You're like, I need to learn how to do the licks and how to do like how to play fast. And like it's really about taking taking away and it's interesting because you you mentioned you kind of hinted at that earlier with that taking that uh keyboard or putting the roads in and then taking that other part out like so even starting to think like that is like that's a that's a really profound because you have never really kind of thought of it like are you putting someone in this headspace that you're gonna hear you know what I mean like you think about where you're placing everything in a mix but maybe not as much of creating an atmosphere in that sense. Yeah, I mean, you you need and you need to think, what are you trying to achieve with the song, like lyrically and vocally in some ways? It's like, are you trying to seduce somebody? Are you trying to berate somebody? Are you trying to express sadness? Like, this is another thing. It's like, you, so you're you're choosing instrumentation as well related to that. Like, there's a song on the album, which I think is one of my best songs I've ever written called Head Up High. And it's it's a it's a very sad song, but it's intimate. It is, it is a, you know, it's, it's the, it's a, an in, internal monologue that is designed to kind of like, it, it, it's, it's a sad encouragement. It's an exhortation to just get through this next bit. And so the instrumentation had to be intimate and, and warm. And then I gave it to somebody else to mix it. It's one of only two songs that were mixed sorry it's not there's four songs that were mixed by other people but this is one of the other two songs that is mixed by a friend of mine and he took it to this totally other production space which i love and it yeah. sounds great but i was hoping to keep it very dry and intimate and all that stuff and and he didn't and there's a lots of ocean analogies yeah. so you know clearly if the ocean is in the lyric there should probably be oceans of reverb right Somewhat <laughs> so he was there, right. yeah. <laughs> is there is being that intimate in like that kind of where it was at when you wrote it, is that why you sent it to someone else to mix? Like, because as a do it all yourself, one person stop. Like it, you know, to have that. I've experienced. Let me put it this way: I've experienced working with someone else. They kind of help me check myself a little bit when I get caught up in like that kind of tunnel of trying to focus on one thing. Having someone else be like, "No, that's fine." Let's focus on this part now. It's going to help that other part. You know, just having some other outside input and direction. Do you find yourself doing that when it gets to be like almost too intimate? Um, 
not really in this case. I mean, the reason I was sort of um, I wanted to hand it over is because, firstly, he's great at mixing. He's yeah. he's a good guy. He owed me one, so it was a free mix. Well, it wasn't a free nice. mix, but... one that he owed me in the pipe. So, and I just wanted, you know, I, I had a very specific idea of it, and I also I, I played I played the drums on it myself, and then I asked his associate um who we, we we have another project that i sing for and play guitar on but the drummer is essentially nathan's good friend so i got the drummer to put a drum beat on it and because it was his drummer and he is fantastic at mixing live drums i took all my live drums off gave him the mix with that drummer so you know, because they were associates and he knew how to work with his kit and his miking techniques and all that stuff. So there's a very technical reason for giving him the mix. Mm. And, you know, my mix is very, very different. It's it's massively different. I mean, a lay person couldn't tell because it's the same song. But, <laughs> you know. Right. But if you go into knowing what you've done behind it and thinking about it for so long, you're going to know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's and, and also there's choices like this particular snare reverbs, for example, or yeah. treatments that I, I didn't use and probably wouldn't use. And I listened, I, I mean, I got the mix back and I was not really into it. And then I ran it by my friends and I got used to it. And I was like, actually, this is great because it's different. Because a lot of the stuff on the album I mix, and I'm not a great mixer. I mean, I'm not the worst mixer in the world, but I'm not great. So, so to have something that shines on top, like End of the Line, Secret, Head Up High and Darkling You, they shine because they're mixed by somebody else. And they, you know, they're just more effectively better mixed than mine so i guess it's like it, it's an honor to have these you know true professionals working on the stuff i'm just you know some sometimes i get i get too stuck in it yeah. my head is too close that i don't know what i'm doing wrong so it's just all this mess in my head like i'm trying to put loads of bass in this one synth sound clashing with my bass line and you know but that's a cool bass <laughs> yeah yeah well that's you get so when you get into it, it one thing that i always question is just like when you get learning a little bit about neuroscience right the more you hear a song the more you accept what it is and your brain starts to to expect what it's just heard so from the first time if it doesn't fit that's probably the m most honest opinion you're going to get but the more you listen to it, your brain starts to, oh, no, that's how that's supposed to sound because you've heard it a lot. You you build up right. this, like, expectations that are no longer surprises but are slowly becoming ingrained. And, like, um, so the gestalt expectation theory, like, is kind of how they, they theorize our brain why it likes music because it predicts what's about to happen. And when it's right, it's like dopamine spike. Um, right. So when you do that with your own mix, right? This is where I keep. Uh -huh. This is my own quandary for myself. Like when I'm listening to something and really getting, ah, oh, you know what? Now I'm all right with it because I heard it nine times. Right. <laughs> Did right. I trick myself into accepting what at first I would never have accepted? Is, is I, <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, I I I know exactly what you mean. There's there's also it's it it also works with with certain songs like you yeah. know the first time I heard heard uh, "Loving the Alien" by Bowie. And that that was the song which really sort of like cemented my love of Bowie, uh, because everything is so weirdly disjointed sonically, like harmonically, it doesn't work. It shouldn't work, because there's all sorts of like flipping from major to minor, and like it's not a standard chord sequence at all. But but it but once it's in, this happens with a few elbow songs too. I don't know whether you know the band Elbow, but but once the once you're familiar with the song it is absolutely impossible to imagine not having heard it. Right, right. Like it, and, and by that point, you, you congratulate yourself. You find yourself smart enough to know what's happening. And I feel like it's a self-congratulatory dopamine rush. There's like an added <laughs> layer to that. <laughs> but that's, that's when I get so caught up with, like, if I'm listening to a mix or a master of a thing, am I, am I accepting it because I've tricked myself into accepting it? And if I put it, you know, or is this the honest opinion of the first listen? You know what I mean? Like, but it doesn't really matter. I, you're right. You're right. <laughs> At the end of the day, it's like if, if you hope, I mean, what we hope is that people will keep on listening to our songs, you know, till t till legacy. Yeah. And, 
you know, I mean, there are certain Cure songs where, you know, the first time I heard them, they were really jarring. Yeah. And then, you know, 10 times in, it's perfectly fine. And there's, there's, a, there's a Radiohead B-side called Palo Alto. Right. Which, um, <laughs> do you know the song? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And And the guitar in it is way too loud. But now it's part of the whole fabric of that song. So it's like, okay, well, that they did that, and that's fine. <laughs> You're right. There's, a, You're right. there's also, I don't know whether you know, like Grimes or not. I'm not familiar with Grimes. I have to check in. Oh, she's she's great. And, and there's this one song, Reality. Okay. She got her laptop stolen. And this one song, she released it as a sort of like, thank you. Cause she, had a, she had the demo mix. Hmm. And it was absolutely beautiful what a wonderful song like it was a really lovely song and she'd just come off the off her last album which was kind of demo-y sounding and so this song was a stopgap before her sort of you know properly mixed debut kind of thing and i used to listen to it with my daughter all the time when she was first a little tiny tiny girl and we loved it and we'd listen to this song we'd bop around with it and she and it was the reality demo and then she released the album with reality, the finished song, and it was just bad. It just wasn't good. But the demo was on at the end because yeah. even though you know yeah. it's not sounding perfectly how it should sound, it's not punchy, it's just a demo. But because it's perfect as it is, you go, and then we're used to it, the better produced, more punchy version isn't. Isn't it? It doesn't yeah. doesn't do the dopamine. Doesn't do it. It ru it's ruined the the proper version for you. You know, it always it always happens with me with demos. Like I have a demo end of the line that I did before before I worked with it with Mark with Margalef. Um, I've been asked to do a vinyl record with the Mexican record label. Uh, coincidentally, the same one that's working with David's new album. And um, so I've re I've put the demo version of end of the line on it because it's great i listened to it the other day for the first time in what five years or whatever and it sounds it's different yeah but it sounds and i'm really happy with it you know you know it's like when you first start diving in the records you're like i wonder why they put the demo on here and until you start doing that and that makes so much sense because you get so like so ingrained with like the demo of it and hearing it done for the first time and really analyzing like the performance and what you need to do for the next thing, but there starts the, the that picture becomes so clear once you spend so much time with it, and that act makes so much more sense now when you put a demo on the end of the record or or put out you know what I mean or put that one out instead of the like um, the, the I don't know better produced take like we're saying, right? But Julian, thank you so much for your time, man. This has been a super pleasure uh, pleasurable conversation. Well, Dave, I, I appreciate talking with you, and and I'm I'm so thrilled that you like the record because obviously you've it. got it's so good. You've got a depth of depth of musical knowledge, which um which is very cool. And I used to teach autistic kids too. No I, way, yeah. And I was I did rock school. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, this is like years and years ago when I was yeah. in England. Uh, it's very rewarding, but draining sometimes. Oh man, <laughs> I'm so tired right now. Like, <laughs> no, I, I appreciate. I appreciate that aspect of you. I think I'm very much respectful of it. So well, thank you so much. Yo, Spike Spiegel here. You just listened to Zig of the Gig podcast. Keep riding the bebop. See you, Space Cowboy. Bang.